Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 107th episode, I'll be talking to Al Kennedy, writer and co-host of House to Astonish and Desert Island Discworld, about Star Trek The Next Generation. Along the way, we discuss strategies for shoplifting Cigarro CDs, we debate the HR strategies for dealing with a Jellicoe, and we sing the praises of one Lieutenant Commander Worf. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the math of you. Before we get started, an editor's note. Cut the music. Hi, everyone. It's been a while, and it's been a hell of a couple of months, hasn't it? We recorded this episode on the 31st of March, right at the start of social isolation, lockdown, pandemic. In some of the bonus material that'll be released at some time, you can hear us joking about how it's been three weeks of lockdown. God, isn't that strange? And then the lockdown continued, and then George Floyd was killed, and the protests began, and the police started rioting, and, and in addition to everything else, both Kimiko and I were working full-time from home while looking after a very active three-year-old at the same time. Between all of that and my duties as a producer on I Will Fight You on the Crooked Russian Cam Network, which go listen, it's a great show. I have just not had the time to edit or even record new episodes of The Math of You. I desperately want to, I really do, but honestly with everything that's going on right now, I feel like I should not be taking up space. Space that can be used for other voices, and in the best possible way, this is not about me. So is the Math of You continuing? Absolutely. Is it going to be on hold for a little while? Probably. And look, I've never made my politics on this show any kind of secret. Both I and the Math of You support Black Lives Matter and activists fighting systems of white supremacy. We believe survivors and victims, and stand in awe of those speaking out and changing the world for the better, often at great risks to themselves. I specifically want to call out on June 6th when there was this incredible show of support across Australia for Black Lives Matter, all nonviolent until a bunch of cops in Sydney decided to kettle a bunch of protesters in Central Station. But I digress. Anyway, please enjoy this very silly and very fun episode with Al Kennedy talking about Star Trek. Al's one of my favorite people and I was so happy to have him on. And actually editing this show, this particular episode, was kind of what kept me from dropping the project altogether during some of these darker months. Stay safe, stay home, wear a mask, and we join this conversation already in progress. you may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? I'm Al Kennedy and I am primarily a podcaster. I do two podcasts, one House to Astonish, which has been running since 2008, 
which officially makes me about 954 years old. And it is a comic book podcast in which I, along with my co-host Paul O'Brien, talk about comic book news and we review a few comics and then we do a bit of sort of mucking around called the official handbook of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which is basically a makeover show for absolute (laughs) deadbeat characters. (laughs) That's been going since 2008. And at the end of last year, I started a second podcast, which is called Desert Island Discworld, named as a pun of on the long-running British radio show Desert Island Discs. I won't say that I started with the pun and worked backwards, but I (laughs) did do that thing. And every episode I get on a guest who talks about their life and their work and about which Terry Pratchett novel they would choose to take with them if they were cast away to a desert island. And apart from those two things, my main career is making puns on Twitter. I'm at House to Astonish. And if you're interested in the many shows that Danny Dyer never got around to making, then that's where you'll find them. Oh, God. (laughs) I do see there's a lot. And yes, you get to see many people responding to Al just by saying his first name with a full stop after it. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes Kieran Gillen's first name with a full stop after it, which is even worse. (laughs) So... The Desert Island Discworld, I want to talk about that a bit because, ironically, you came on to talk about Discworld the last time you were on. So you were kind of doing this ass about face when you're coming on the show as a guest for a special one and then coming for a regular one afterwards, which I think has never been done from what I understand here on The Math of You. If people go back and listen to the sort of the additional material episode of mine, which is, you know, 10 minutes or other bits of chat. One of the things that we talked about was all the podcast ideas that people have that they never have time to do. And one of the things that I brought up on that, I discovered because I was listening to it again last week, was I said, do you know, there's got to be a market somewhere for somebody to do a Terry Pratchett podcast where they just go through <laughs> it with a guest at a time and a, a book at a time. Prescient. Yeah. Well, it turns out that there actually are quite a few Terry Pratchett podcast that do you know one book at a time or one book every few episodes and they're really good like there's Pratchett there's Truth Shall Make You Fret there's all sorts of cool um, podcasts out there but I think Desert Island Discworld has got this sort of USP of it being partly a kind of book group and partly a sort of Desert Island just style biographical interview show and it's very good and I highly recommend listeners go and check it out and you're still relatively close to the start so you can probably do the whole thing in a relatively short time frame by the end of April there will have been two full seasons of six episodes each there you go so that British brevity coming into play mm-hmm. <laughs> although it's funny my one it kind of I know what Desert Island Disc is I think my one example is I was reading a I think it was like one of those Blackadder retrospective books like sort of the making of oral history I was standing in a bookstore on Oxford Street in Sydney, a bookstore that's now closed called Ariel. And I was like flipping through it and I saw a brief interview with Rowan Atkinson where he had gone on Desert Island Discs and he was then asked, okay, well, what other thing would you bring to a desert island? And he said his car, which was a particular make of very fancy car that I don't recognize. The host then pointed out there would be no gas to run it and no roads to run it on. And he said, well, I know I wouldn't drive it. I would just, I'd also bring a nappy so I could rub it down with <laughs> and make sure that no one ever touched it. And I'm like, all right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that we do on Desert Island. I see we, like, there's more than one person involved. <laughs> well, me and all the voices in my head do uh, on Desert Island Discworld is on regular Desert Island Discs, it's they pick 10 pieces of music or 10 songs. And then at the end, they are given the chance to take one book with them and one item that must be a luxury item. So at the end of Desert Island Discworld, because we've been talking about a book all the way through, we'll be allowed to take one piece of music and one item which has to be expressly practical. <laughs> and every British person that's been on has got this immediately, and both of the non-Brits that I've had on have been absolutely bemused <laughs> beyond belief that I've set this highly weird restriction that it has to be something <laughs> practical and each time I've had to explain it to them and I'd forgotten that Desert Island Discs is, you know, it's been running for a million years in the UK like I think it started in the 50s and it's still weekly and it's not a big export <laughs> <laughs> Although speaking of music, and this is a bit of a tangent I apologise, Go for it. but uh, I don't know if you've seen, like even before we were kind of into socially isolating and we had just moved in I realized that we brought two massive boxes of CDs with us that had lived in a closet at our previous place because we didn't have room for a lot of shelving. And so as I was unpacking them, I was thinking, like, maybe we should recycle these, you know. But then, like, part of me couldn't quite let them go. So I decided mm. to go on a sort of a, at this point, month-long sojourn where I was just uploading them to my, you know, massive hard drive at the highest quality I could. And so I've been just sort of marveling at some of the format choices, like things like, okay, well, here is a double album that we have to fit into a single jewel case. Should we have it like from swing from the spine to the right? Or should we have it in a slightly smaller inset that we could like swing up internally to the left? And I put that on Twitter and I saw some spirited debate and people who came into my DMs to tell me like long and extended things about why such and such is the superior way to compile a double album under the thing. And I actually felt I'd fallen into a high fidelity hole <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I, I used to work in HMV in my early 20s while I was studying. And it's one of those things that every so often someone would come up with some brand new way of, of layering multiple CDs into a thing. And mm -hmm. just really, I mean, the one thing, the, the main thing that I learned from working in HMV is how to effectively shoplift CDs. Not, I never did, <laughs> but it's very, very easy. These tags that they put over the, the edge, the outside of the CD, I mean, that doesn't mean anything when you can just stick your fingernails under both hinges and open it from the other side. It's super easy, as long as you don't mind not having the box. There we go. <laughs> Crime Tips with Al Kennedy. That's my other new podcast where I <laughs> help people there. develop their crime skills. Because, God, yeah, I remember, yeah, because I worked at a Borders and, and in the music section, and we had at least four different types of those security cases to put around CDs. And anytime you'd get, like, an artist, like, I remember Cigarose was really bad for this, where they'd be like, oh, I'm going to release this in, like, a book format that's <laughs> slightly taller than a CD and slightly fatter at one end, so it wouldn't fit into any of your hard cases. So we had to keep it in the cage, and then no one would buy it. So we would have these things, like, just sitting around, uh, like, just watching the different thing and being like, okay, well, we can't put that on the floor because someone will steal it. But also, if we don't put it anywhere, it, no one will buy it ever. I think if you're going and trying to steal a Sigur Ross CD, then you probably deserve to get to keep it. 
You know, <laughs> it's like there was a, a Scottish band called Ball Boy, who very, very good Scottish indie band. And they had an album which came out just after the, the turn of the millennium called Club Anthems 2001, which was, <laughs> as the great John Peel once said on his show about that album, I think a lot of people are going to go in and buy this record by accident and they're going to get rather a better record than they really deserve. <laughs> Oh, I love it. The other thing I've learned through this is exactly how many artists during a particular time wanted to make sure that their CD was also encoded as an interactive CD-ROM. Oh, yeah. There's nothing more off-putting than popping in a CD, because I'm doing this with my 2001 Mac Pro Tower, which is like a massive cinder block of aircraft-grade <laughs> aluminium. And so I'm just popping it in there and doing stuff on my laptop. And then to see a window pop up that says, save me to your hard drive. And I'm like, no, I, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I have a CD that I got off of the front of an issue of Kerrang! in about 1997 <laughs> or 1998. And it has got on it, as well as all the music it has on it, it has a rubbish, absolutely rubbish game. Starring the band Symposium, various members of whom went to be on Hells for Heroes. And uh, it's a Stage Invaders. It's like a crap Space Invaders clone. Oh, no. Where you have to stop people from getting onto... Because Symposium's gigs famously were rowdy things. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of that kind of stuff went on. A lot of Stage Invasion stuff went on. You played the roadie and you had to stop fans from getting up on the stage to attack the band it's just some like homestar runner level nonsense yeah totally <laughs> and actually the other thing i found which i'm kind of holding some of them back is did you ever read the music magazine the word oh yeah i've, I've got i had a subscription to the word i've got so many of those cds exactly so did i and i used to buy it from the news agent near where i worked and the occasional time they would have it in i would like chase it down and buy it because i loved I'd, like their particular sensibility really spoke to like 2008 me. I loved that all the CDs on the front had a particular cool cover, like a painting almost. What I found going through those, which by the way, I learned so much new music from those CDs specifically because it was never always new music. It was just like weird stuff. Yeah. And I've been going through and the ones I've kept and I've got a little stack of them over to my left I can see are the ones with the cool paintings on the front. And then I remember like distinctly when they switched to just sort of a compiled bunch of pictures of the artists and just a boring generic kind of May 2010. And I was so hurt by that. Yeah, I've got a lot of those ones still. Here, I'll drop it into the Skype chat. You can see a picture. Oddly enough, next to my Sandman and a pile of pictures of my son that I found <laughs> in a drawer at work, I will sh- send you a little stack of Now Hear This CDs. Yep. Oh, they were did such good covers. And they're all a little bit different, but they've all got like a record or a boombox or something hidden mm, in them. Mm-hmm. And I'm tempted to like do that thing that you see at like, you know, terrible, you know, cigarette shops or something where they'll have like a bunch of CD cases or like an album or something in a frame. Mm-hmm. I'm tempted to like pick the best of these and just like blue tack them to a backdrop and put them in a frame and hang them up. Yeah, definitely. That's a good idea. <laughs> It's your quarantine project for you. <laughs> See, all of this was triggered by the fact that you said the word Kerrang, a word I'd completely forgotten <laughs> until just now. Oh, I love Kerrang. Or, well, I, did, I haven't bought Kerrang in a long time, but, like, I loved it. It was basically, like, I would get Kerrang and I would get Metal Hammer. And <laughs> Kerrang was just, like... I loved Kerrang because it was, like, smash hits for metal. It was just... 
It was so light. Kerrang understood that metal was silly and that metal was also awesome. And so <laughs> you could enjoy something that was silly. I mean, metal's ridiculous. I love metal. <laughs> It's like you see in certain works, like, you know, I'm sure, for example, that Dragon Force understand how ridiculous they are and like revel in that. They have this particular kind of joy. And then you see it in, like reaching way back into stuff like Spinal Tap, where, yes, we understand this, but we love this dearly, this, this precious thing. But then you can also see it in stuff like wrestling. Like my favorite wrestlers are ones who know exactly how ridiculous pro wrestling is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pro wrestling is silly. Pro wrestling is awesome. Exactly. Metal is silly. Metal is awesome. Comics are silly. Comics are awesome. Everything awesome is silly in some way or another. And most things that are silly are awesome. It's one of those things where it's like, would you really want to only be involved in incredibly self-serious things? Oh, first, first serious. Yeah. Ah, it'd be like being in the Smashing Pumpkins. It would be terrible. (laughs) Although Billy Corgan tried to own a wrestling company, but the less said about that, the better. Well, yeah, yeah, but like I could just imagine, it must have been so, poor old James I having to just grimace in every photo that they took when he is a very silly man himself, you know? <laughs> Melissa after mouth there giving it all, I'm versus rock star. <laughs> Grumpiest looking band ever. Have there ever been four people who made heavier weather of recording with each other than the Smashing Pumpkins did? I'm now just, I want a comic that is just like James doing silly things. <laughs> so just like, you know, picking out a garden gnome, <laughs> deciding which funny hat to wear in a family photo, <laughs> picking out a particular graphic tee at a Spencer's gift, you know, like all these things. Like this could be, and looking like that same kind of self-serious thing with the blunt streak in his hair and everything. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. I've not thought about Smashing Pumpkins in a very long time. <laughs> I had to scan in my Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness one out of my giant CD binder that has been with me since the 11th grade. Oh, it's a great album though, Melancholy. Like, I mean, I, I reckon Smashing Pumpkins, you're looking at probably four really, really good albums and then kind of a bunch of chaff as well, but like four really first-rate records, I think. And I would include Machina in there. I think Machina's a great album. Mm. Melancholy has some of the first music I ever learned to play myself with my terrible band when I was in grade nine, listening to it over and over again so I could get all the changes in butterfly wings, you know. Awesome. (laughs) And then trying to learn it very, very badly. (laughs) I was in a a metal covers band at school, it will not surprise you to learn. And, well, as I say, what were we called? Originally we were called alchemy and then we changed to under the sun after the sabbath song (laughs) and we played a gig at our school which was a charity gig which i organized which was called the notorious (laughs) gig and it was it was really 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 good fun but so we obviously i organized it so we went on last because screw y'all and uh we you know we did not retain the full crowd I would have said, it turns out that if you've had the band immediately on before playing, you know, When I Come Around and stuff like that, if you come on and launch into NIB or, or something, then like, people are not so hot on that. Although we did play, you know, we played uh, some therapy, we played Die Laughing, we played Nirvana, we did Breed. It was good fun. Exactly. And very silly. As well it should be. Yes. I just realised we're nearly 20 minutes into this and we haven't even gotten to you yet. You're a tangent machine, Al. <laughs> it's been all me so far as well, is the thing. It's been not me <laughs> and all me. 
All right. Well, then let's start with the basics. Then whereabouts did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a town called Kilwinning, which is in the west coast of Scotland. It's not huge. It's not a tiny, tiny town, but it's not massive. I'm trying to think who's famous who came from Kilwinning. Colin Hay. Colin Hay is from Kilwinning, of Men at Work. Oh, there you go. It's from my hometown. The Canadian poet Robert Service grew up in Kilwinning. Some footballers and things. A lot of footballers actually <laughs> come from Kilwinning. I went to school in Glasgow and then I moved to Edinburgh for uni. So I've basically just been moving more north and more east as I get older. So I think I will eventually retire to Norway or the, <laughs> the North Sea or something. Have a cottage on the edge of a rock somewhere. And exactly. Just, kind of just a, stare out at the sea and then go back in a dinghy and a piece of comic books in the sea somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if you if you haven't listeners, go see the lighthouse. It's very good. <laughs> so, in this small town in Scotland, what sort of kid were you? I don't want to say like a geeky kid, but like I was very interested in reading and not at all interested in sport. I was very bad <laughs> at all sport which I would have liked to have been better at it, but I just was mal-coordinated beyond belief. I have a problem with 3D vision, which means that I can't catch, basically. I can't judge how far away a thing is if it's coming towards me. So I will either... Re- I'm, I'm like, you know that gif of... In the Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Offspring, where Data has a daughter called Lal, it is probably my favourite episode of TNG and I blub every time I see it but there's that bit where Wesley throws a ball to Lal to test the reflexes and it sails past her and then like three seconds later she puts her hand up to catch it that was basically (laughs) me so I was very poor at that but I was just people talk about being voracious readers like I was I was like the Tasmanian devil of reading as a kid. <laughs> like I would just plough through every book. My parents had a subscription to Reader's Digest, right? Which I think is a thing which is, it's like athlete's foot. I think like you can contract a subscription to Reader's Digest quite easily, but then you can never be fully free of it for the rest of your life. <laughs> it will just sit there dormant in your DNA. And went through all all of those, just, I didn't understand what Reader's Digest was, and I still am not completely clear, but it was something that just had lots and lots and lots of things in it that were all different from each other to read. And then we got a thing which was, it was called something like Reader's Digest Classic Library or something like that. Oh, the condensed books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they were like hardbacks, like really plush looking hardback, like full leather covers with like yes. gilt trim and stuff like that. They looked legit as hell. Yeah, but they weren't proper books. They were were like truncated highlight reels from books. It was like watching some of those clip shows of like the 50 greatest sitcoms or whatever. It's like four bits from novels. And it's not like they were thematically linked or anything like that. So, you know, like you'd get something like, I don't know, some Jackie Collins and some Stephen King in one volume, something like that, you know? It was a very, very weird thing to have. Just in concept. And such a strange thing to put in leather and cover in gold and make look like the classics books that, you know, would be on some lawyer's shelf. And in fact, it was Reader's Digest condensed books. Yeah. Talk about glass shining more than diamond, right? Yeah, totally. I remember picking one of those up and reading and it was just like this incredibly truncated story of like a man who had kidnapped like a teenager 
uh, held him for ransom and because of like a flood that came they had to like survive in the forest together and it just like it flew by and i remember thinking like wow this relationship has really developed in this, <laughs> you know 40 odd pages that i've read and now they're friends i guess i don't know and not realizing that it was only like if it was a sandwich i'd be eating like the lettuce and a slice of cheese and a bit of mayo no bread whatsoever exactly so i basically read everything that i could find like i used to sit at the breakfast table and like read the cereal boxes like i mm-hmm. just so long as i was reading something i was happy i mean i was happy anyway like i was a happy kid and <laughs> i have two younger siblings a younger brother who's two years younger than me which meant i always had somebody to play with when i was growing up as well my sister is 10 years younger than me which meant that we got a cute kid in the house just at the point where i was becoming uncute <laughs> which was good because it kept everyone in good mood so yeah i basically just grew up on we had so many ladybird books to begin with it was the first thing that we got in those and i remember trying to teach myself how to read by getting ladybird books i remember vividly i must have been about three or four years old and i remember kneeling at the side of my bed with a ladybird book on the bed and it was three little pigs <laughs> so clearly and not being able to understand what the word said and being raging angry that I couldn't understand what the word said and right well that's it I'm going to learn how to do this and I will teach myself reading through spite yeah exactly <laughs> I was mad at books, so I learned how to read them. I decided if if I'm going to be this mad at books, I must know their secrets to defeat them. (laughs) I will study their ways and learn all their moves. It was like the five deadly venoms. I was just, I will go around all of them. Oh, God, is it? Oh, no, we cannot go into a thing where I compare little golden books to the various five deadly venoms. (laughs) We will be here all day. The pokey little puppy is is scorpion. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so, and I remember doing things like... Tony scrawny lion style is immensely strong. <laughs> no, I can't. Sorry, you were saying. I remember I had the book. It was about a fox that stole some chickens and put them in a big bag or whatever. I remember I tried to say I was going to emulate this, not by stealing chickens, but by... <laughs> unzipping the duvet cover of my bed uh, on my over blanket thing duvet is a british thing i don't know what people in america or or anywhere else in the world would call it but they would call it a duvet in north america but they would call it oddly enough a duna here in australia d-o-o-n-a yes i knew that one because i got enough australian mates when i was at uni <laughs> so yeah i zipped myself up into the cover of that and of course the zip's on the outside so if you manage to get the zip closed <laughs> from the inside as a i don't know five-year-old what you will find happening is that after you have shouted for quite a long time about the fact that you're stuck inside this thing um your dad will come free you and laugh at you <laughs> and be baffled at how you got yourself in there in the first place <laughs> I mean, in fairness, it was pretty stupid. But I'm just imagining that you may be rolling down the hallway in this <laughs> hamster ball made out of a duvet. <laughs> or like flexing like a big grub or something. That was me. Just... <laughs> I, I basically invented Zorbing, but a sort of non-transparent version of it. At least you didn't reach the stairs or there could have been a tragedy. <laughs> no, that would have been terrible. I did fall down the stairs a few times when I was a kid. But that, one time I fell down the stairs because I was reading. One time I walked into a lamppost because I was reading. Literally, I was walking along the street reading a book and walked into a lamppost. Because I would do that. I just wouldn't stop to the extent that the only time at school 
that I ever got detention was because I'd finished all my work quickly so I could read a book. And I was sitting reading a book. <laughs> and my teacher was just like, this is the most pathetic attempt at insubordination. <laughs> but you're going to detention anyway. Because you do that. You'd, you'd keep the book in your desk and then like slide it to the edge and like prop it up with like your finger or something. And you like glance down and steal a sentence. This illicit learning, how dare you? I was just sitting reading it. I was just sitting with it on my desk, just reading it. And I was in the front row, but I'd finished all my work. So I was just like, well, I finished my work. So what's it to you? My attempted trick was I would read the whole book that we were meant to read in chapters, Mm -hmm. thinking, well, if I get this all out of the way, it'll be fine. And then I'll have extra time for the rest of the semester. Except for when you're a kid and you read a book really fast, especially a book like, you know, Wuthering Heights. You're not going to remember all the twists and turns that you might remember when you're doing it chapter by chapter. And so when you're asked to remember, so in chapter four, what was the main theme? You're like, I don't know. It's anger. It's Wuthering Heights. It's always anger. Doomed love? Uh, Dead puppies? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Do you get anything from the book you don't get from the song? No, let's move on. The song's better anyway. It is. I wrote a thing at school. I, I hated Wuthering Heights, but I wrote it. When I did my A-level English, my teacher gave me a... We all had to do, like, individual essays that we were given the titles for, and they tailored them to us in a way that they thought would challenge us. And so mine statement was, Wuthering Heights is an overblown piece of melodrama with thuddingly unsubtle imagery and cardboard-thin <laughs> characters. And the intention from my teacher was I was supposed to disagree with this. And I just got this title for the essay, and I was like, yep, let's do 1,500 words on that, shall we? And then <laughs> just this polemic <laughs> about how bad Wuthering Heights was. And... She, my teacher loved Wuthering Heights and I've never forgotten because we had to read these essays out in the A-level class. There only were nine of us in the class. And she <laughs> she watched me read this entire thing out and it took like, you know, 10 minutes to read out or whatever. At the end of which she was like, well, I suppose I can't not give that an A. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, chalk one up. <laughs> Although I love that in an official school assignment, you got to see the sentence thuddingly unsubtle. Yes. Which is a masterful thing. It was great fun. I loved doing my level English. I did when we did The Tempest and the one that they gave me for that was that The Tempest is a piece of Shakespearean science fiction. And that was good fun. That was really good fun. So I got to write about things like Caliban as a monster character that's created by a flawed, effectively scientist. And I got to write about how, like, one of the big themes about sci-fi in general is it takes things which are familiar to you and it gives you them back in a different way so you can see them with fresh eyes. And the fact that you tie that straight back to the Brave New World that has such people in it is... You, you, this is sci-fi for her it's sci-fi um for miranda and and so yeah terrific fun loved it everything that was to do with books and languages was for me like when i was in my sixth year at school i did three a levels my three levels were english french and latin so i vowed that i would not touch a calculator ever again <laughs> a flash forward to you now trying to calculate sales tax the change that you've got <laughs> It's like, damn, if I kept one bit of math. Exactly. Although that said, I was of a similar bent. I, I hated all of my math classes. But at one point, a couple of jobs ago, I was helping like with an online store order and like giving someone advice on how to 
to okay, we were returning one thing, so we had to refund the equivalent for that one thing, and then we had to work out the real price instead of just the discounted price. And then I just like pulled out a bit of paper and just did a little bit of multiplication to work out the percentage. And I looked up to see the young person who was about 19 staring at me. <laughs> like he'd just shown them a card trick. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I'm just working out the, the, the percentage. What? And they're like, I could get you a calculator. I'm like, no, I've got it. It's right here. You should give them this much back. And it's like, okay. And they looked at me like they weren't sure. Like they were holding some kind of information that might explode at any time. Like your friend has just told you, oh, no, you shouldn't buy a barbecue. I've made you one here. You should use it. <laughs> yeah. So I think at some point we should pivot into the actual topic of the episode. So, Al, when did you let Star Trek into your life? It was when I was a kid. I will have been about eight, I think, when Star Trek The Next Generation started showing in the UK. And I remember my brother and I were playing. My dad came through and said, "There's this Star Trek has just started. It's brand new kind of Star Trek. Do you want to come and watch it? And we had no idea what Star Trek was. So we were just like, nope, <laughs> we're going to sit here and play. <laughs> so that's how I missed Encounter at Farpoint. And eventually, after about eight or nine episodes of it having been on, we got into it. It was at the time when the first set of Star Trek Next Generation action figures had come out. But it wasn't the Playmates ones that were quite chunky. It was the really skinny little G.I. Joe looking ones. Oh, yes. I can't remember who made those, but there was... Picard, Riker, Geordi, and maybe Data? I can't remember. Certainly it was, it was three of them, because I remember it had Geordi in the red vest, which obviously mm-hmm. was not a long-lived thing. I remember when we were out in the toy shop, which was Beatty's Toys in Air, and uh, <laughs> to just quote Marty DeBerge, don't go looking for it, it's not there now. <laughs> but we were asked by my dad did we want one of these and we still didn't know what Star Trek Next Generation was and so we were like nope <laughs> can we have a Transformer <laughs> but I mean then you flash forward like less than a year and we were watching it every single week never missed it we had Marvel UK put out a Star Trek magazine for ages that had like synopses of episodes and stuff like that in it we used to get that every issue. Then at a certain point, we started getting the action figures, the Playmates ones. There's somewhere, I think, still in my parents' house, there is a box which has got a large number of Star Trek action figures in it. Like, we were getting just everything. If you were a member of the crew, you were basically on our list of people we wanted to buy. Much less so, like, all the aliens and stuff. What use is having a Borg? You know, you need 600 <laughs> Borg. To be able to do anything with it. Any army related character, like where it's like you need lots of them, they should be cheap and they should come in a bucket. That's the way it should work. Exactly. It should be nine or 27 of them. <laughs> because that, of course, would be a Borg cube. Oh, ow. So, ow. Moving on. Alphonse Evelyn Kennedy. <laughs> ow. How dare you come on my show and do that? Oh, you knew what? You knew I was a snake. <laughs> your nature <laughs> exactly this is some scorpion stings frog stuff here you knew this was gonna happen um so yeah so we we got millions of these action figures and even like the we got tasha yar and ensign row and lieutenant barclay and all these kinds of people like who wants an action figure of lieutenant barclay for goodness sake what are you gonna do with that one <laughs> like some exciting storylines in which he's a bit awkward 
he makes holodeck versions of all of his friends yeah it's a bit creepy but it's it's, yeah. it's a bit unfair that like they all get him for that and Jordy's off making holograms of leah brahms and it's like hey hey to be fair the computer did that <laughs> and then he just kind of rolled with it yeah yeah <laughs> Jordy is terrible with the holodeck. Jordy LaForge, at one point, as many Star Trek fans will know, says computer create an enemy that can beat data, and the, then the computer creates a fully sentient holographic life form. At which point, Jordy does not at any point go, computer, create a hologram that can break warp factor 10 or can solve world hunger. Or that can... It's like, Jordy, you've made a thing. You've you basically solved all problems <laughs> by working out that you can give the computer a set of parameters and it will generate a holographic person that can do those things. Why on earth are you not going any further with this, you total doof? Anyway... George LaForge, I'm bringing this up at his next appraisal. (laughs) It's funny because I also listened to The Greatest Generation, which is a long-running Star Trek podcast. At one point, they had a brief interview with LeVar Burton, and they did the brave thing where they said, So... Geordie and women, huh? <laughs> and LeVar Burton, like, burst out like he had, like a dam had broken inside of him. And he went, it's bullshit, man. It's bullshit. Geordie <laughs> <laughs> uh, was always one of my absolute favourites on Star Trek. So, like, I absolutely love George LaForge. Because Geordie was, he was a solid good dude. And he was always looking out for his friends. And he was always put himself out for his pals. He liked knowledge for knowledge and he, he liked to read and he liked you know dorky things he was a guy who valued learning stuff as a kid who just read and read and read and read and read i loved seeing somebody like geordie who was not action superstar geordie laforge but who saved the day on many occasions that was really great and really valuable. It's something that Star Trek is frequently credited for, specifically Next Generation. A lot of the solutions are not fixed by firing a phaser at it. Or if you are, it's going to be used as a tool in order to like get a chemical reaction to do a thing. Or it's, like, it's something they really leaned on in Discovery as well. You know, your STEM fields. We will put a problem in front of you and you will work the problem until you get a solution. Yeah. The kind of thing you hear about from your friends who had engineering at school, where it's like, oh, the answers to the test are stuck to the ceiling and you have to get it. But all you have is, you know, licorice and toothpicks. Yeah. Go mad. Yeah, no, it's excellent. Although I think Next Generation is very much a product of its time in that, you know, they put the therapist on the bridge next to the captain. And every time a problem occurs, they go into a meeting room to have a conference about it. Basically predicted management styles to to the extent that they're are multiple official books published by Simon & Schuster, which are to do with management styles that you can learn through Star Trek. A Picard one, a Ferengi (laughs) one. Yeah. It's funny. I actually got... uh, My ex-wife had no interest in science fiction. I found that in order to get her to enjoy the things that I enjoyed, I would have to find some hook. For example, I got her to read Sandman because I said, oh, hey, you know, and I think it's like the third volume there's the story set in rome during the transition to augustus and you know i know you know a lot more about rome than i do could you maybe read it and tell me what's up with that like some of the historical context boom hooks in (laughs) but with star trek because she worked in hr at a university and i said hey you know i'm watching this thing where Jellico comes in and he like decides to make a whole bunch of changes and Riker as a subordinate has to then be the bridge between him and the crew, the crew who are ready to revolt. 
And, you know, hmm, it's really interesting. Could you take that from an HR standpoint? And then we watched the episode. And it was, like, yeah, it's like, because there is something for just about everybody in Star Trek Next Generation. What an amazing episode that is as well. Angelico's such a terrible person and such a great character. Because he's, it's not like Angelico's wrong with anything that he says. It's the it's Sobchak syndrome, isn't it? It's, it's Walter Sobchak from Big Lebowski. You're not wrong, Walter. You're, you're just, just an, an asshole. asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And looking back now, I can also see, okay, well, they were at the time, they were preparing for another war with the Cardassian. This idea of you're taking an exploratory ship and a science vessel run by ultimate diplomat Jean-Luc Picard, and you're putting essentially a military leader in charge and how like the shifting of gears happens yeah. and grinding of gears, because as well it should. You're right. Looking at that from a management standpoint of you're Riker, you're the two I see for someone who had a particular style, and now you have this massive change management project in front of you. How are you going to get to the end? Yeah, Riker himself was a very different type of leader to Picard. Riker's really stern. When you see Riker dealing with junior members of the crew, like, if I was working on the Enterprise, I'd be terrified of Commander Riker. (laughs) He's either really gruff and shouting at people and calling people Mr. Whatever, and just like... Okay. Or, you know, he's got a little twinkly look in his eye, which says, come back to my place and I'm going to wear a weird kimono and play the saxophone. <laughs> you know? Trombone, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, trombone, not saxophone. <laughs> Why did I think it was a saxophone? It's even dorkier. I was going to say, we were going to get emails here. <laughs> no, exactly. Why did I think it was the saxophone? No, it's a, obviously a trombone. Because it is, it's the absolute dorkiest instrument he could learn how to play, I think, really. Maybe the tuba. Yeah, and Jonathan Frakes actually did play the trombone so it's like i guess Riker plays the trombone now but you're right though it's like he would be your best friend until you tried to use that in any kind of work-related scenario at which point yeah the snap would go into his voice Mm. and you'd be you mentioned ensign Rowe earlier when you're talking about the toys and watching the difference between how Riker would work with someone like Jordy versus how he would deal with Rowe who when she was coming on was like you know coming out of prison and was known to be a disciplinary issue and, like, he tells her to take her earring off yeah. and stuff. And it's like, work is to keep his sash. Yeah. In fairness, he won that. He got prettied up for that and learned all of his party pieces and learned his responses to all the questions the judges were going to ask him. And he won Miss Kronos fair and square. So he gets to keep the sash <laughs> on until they elect another one. If, if it was a different kind of show, I'd cut in that bit where you talk about the Bethlehem tournament where it's like, first place with honours. <laughs> Well, that's a nice segue, because I know that Lieutenant Worf has a special place in your heart now. So why don't you tell me a little bit about Worf? He's my favorite. I love Worf. Worf is somebody who wants to be true to themselves, but isn't sure what that is. Worf doesn't know really where he belongs. He would love to be... He doesn't feel like he's Klingon enough to be Klingon, and he doesn't feel like he's human at all. Even though he was raised by humans, you know, he was raised by the Roshenko family, and he works with a bunch of humans, he's the only Klingon in Starfleet. And he is... You know, he's desperately lonely a lot of the time because of that, but he is somebody who is really, really trying to keep the fire burning inside of himself of what he believes it is to be a Klingon, while at the same time embodying everything which has made him want to be in Starfleet. And if you were a Klingon in Starfleet, how hard must that be? Like, everything around you. Can you imagine the amount of times that they'll have, like, 
Oh, this is the day that we celebrate when we won that big battle over the... Cl- oh, hi, Wharf. Hey. Uh, <laughs> you know, there must be a lot of that. And there'll be a lot of people's grandparents who are just... You know, they'll call them the bump heads or something like that. It's just oh, real horrible racism, people. And Yeah, my grandfather was at the Battle of Binary Stars. Fuck you. And it's like, ugh. Exactly that kind of thing. So it must be so hard. And then on top of that, he has to deal with his son, who is the biggest loser. He's useless. Honestly, Alexander. No fault. There's, there are a number of secondary characters in the Star Trek canon who, through no fault of the very good and talented actors who play them, are just awful. Alexander Ryshenko is one. Keiko O'Brien is another. Poor Keiko. Poor old Rosalind Chow. Rosalind Chow's a great actor. And all she got to do was basically moan at Miles O'Brien. Miles! Just, ugh. Please give this woman who's a good actor something to do that is not this. The the one episode where she's amazing is the one where O'Brien comes back to the station having been away somewhere. Or she, come, no, she comes back to the station having been away on a botany trip. And... She's been taken over by an alien creature who, like, threatens to kill Keiko and stuff like that. And she's wonderful in it. She's so scary in it. And it's just like, look, look what she can do. Yeah, she turns it on like a light switch. Yeah. Yeah. So good. There was a theory through The Greatest Generation that Miles and Keiko were an arranged marriage. (laughs) Because the only way the writers knew how to write problems was to write early relationship problems, uh-huh. but then they had presented these two as married. And yet, for example, they don't understand what the other one has for breakfast. And like, yeah. you live on a ship together. You know, Keiko, if you serve him sea urchins, he's probably going to hate it because he lives on porridge and nothing else. Yeah. Miles O'Brien with porridge and scotch in his veins. <laughs> and yet he has this put in front of him and treats it as if he has never seen this before. And I'm like, you're married to this woman. You must at least have had breakfast at least once together before you said your vows. Yeah, I can see that as a working theory, to be honest with you. But Yeah, let's say, coming back to Worf, what I think is really interesting, and it's something that you know, I think I noticed more as an adult than I do as a kid. Because as a kid, I took Worf's view of honor and Klingon honor and what you should do and what you shouldn't do at face value. As an adult rewatching it, what you realize is that Worf's idea of Klingon honor, of honor in general, is not very Klingon, because you see other Klingons, and they're basically rowdy drunks, you know, who would start a fight over nothing, and will do awful things, and then retroactively say, oh yeah, 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 honor was fine because of X, Y, Z. And so, watching Worf, because it's mentioned that in order to learn how to be Klingon, Worf studied books that most modern Klingons would never have read, Mm -hmm. like ancient texts and stuff. So, the idea that he has, between his human upbringing... And the research he has done on his heritage has come up with this amalgam that is better than both. And that is nothing like either of them are in practice. He's basically, just can we, if we can bring the Discworld in for a second, he's Corporal Carrot. Yes, that's a very good analogy. He has read about what it is to be a Watchman. He has read about what it is to be a Dwarf. And he isn't able to make himself fit into the mould of what either of those actually is in practice. So instead he comes up with this fusion that's entirely him. Yeah, absolutely. And he create a new, better version. And I don't think it's any coincidence that in so many Star Trek fan things or whatever that are set in the future, Worf has become the Klingon Chancellor. 
because Worf, in many ways, is... He's an inspiring figure. Like, he's somebody who people would look to him. Like, Worf went on to the Enterprise and commanded the respect of the crew. And this is crew who will have lost family and friends in wars against the Klingons. Because it wasn't that far. I mean, it's, what, 80 years between original series and TNG? It's within a couple of generations, and it's within the, the living memory of people who were around in the time of TNG, particularly given we know that from Encounter at Farpoint that people can live for a bazillion years, as shown by the extremely aged makeup DeForest Kelly. Not enough people called DeForest, are there really? Not really, no. DeForest is not a common enough name. But then I guess, how many people do you know whose surname is Shatner or Nimoy? <laughs> it's not a common... <laughs> Anyway, sorry, that's tangent. But um, but yeah, so Worf is somebody who came onto the Enterprise and immediately people listened to Worf because, I mean, yeah, Worf was effectively, originally he was just, you know, working the, the horseshoe after Tasha went. But very quickly, Worf became somebody who was a really valuable member of the crew and he had people who were prepared to follow him into battle. He was, as the you know the head of security and guy gets sent on a lot of away missions. And people had to trust him, because if you're going into that kind of situation, you need to know that everybody who is in your little unit has got your back, and they all trusted each other. Worf was somebody who came through like appalling adversity, really. When you just think about what his life was like and what his upbringing was like and how badly he got treated by other Klingons. I've got friends who are, are also big Star Trek fans and their least favourite type of Star Trek episode is the Klingon politics episode. I love the Klingon politics episode. My least favourite type of episode is the Bajoran religion episode. And there are too many of those. But <laughs> You can just throw in a, a Gowron eye roll and just say, I love Robert Riley. He's just... Just wonderful. Also, if anybody ever played the Star Trek video board game, Riley was also the Klingon in that. Although he wasn't playing Gowron, he was playing another Klingon, but he was the one who told people to experience beige and so on. <laughs> I see vivid memories of playing that many, many, many times and yes. Riley shouting out, Glory to you and your house. <laughs> You're the one who is moving now. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> anyway. And I don't think it's any coincidence that when they were looking to bring a character onto DS9 in season four to kind of shake it up a bit, because there, there are a lot of different things at the beginning of season four of Deep Space Nine to kind of shake it up a bit, because I think they thought Deep Space Nine was sort of starting to settle a bit too much and maybe stagnate a little. And they wanted to make it a little bit more, bring a bit more action into it, really. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why they brought in The, the Defiant in season three was to allow them to get off the station. And then they bring in Worf in season four and they start a war up with the Klingons again. They're like, well, can we make it a bit more Star Trek-y? And they do stuff like they start, at that point they start like changing the uniforms up and they change the theme to something with this martial drum beat. And then a few episodes later, they change it to something with a slightly less out of sync martial drum beat. And, <laughs> and Worf comes in the way of the warrior. The season four two-part opener in which Worf joins the crew. It's excellent. Oh, what an episode that is. And he's fantastic in it. There's a great bit where they're talking about how Keiko is pregnant. And um, it's because <laughs> Worf delivered their first kid, the, the Brian's first child, Molly. And so... <laughs> 
<laughs> delivered under great stress of, of Keiko screaming at him. In an amazing disaster movie episode, which I just loved a bit. I think it's Quark says something like, oh, you know, Keiko, she's having a baby. And Worf goes, no. <laughs> and, they, and they quickly follow it up by him, like booking a floating chunk of leave whenever she gets close to the delivery date. He's just like, yeah, yeah, I've got that booked in. I will be off station. Yes. My ass will be a blip on the horizon. Ah, <laughs> oh, he's so wonderful. And then on TNG, they had him in that relationship with Troy, which I never was convinced by that. I didn't think that ever really made sense. But his relationship with Dax made sense. Absolutely. They worked so well together as a couple. Speaking of great characters, I could talk about Terry Farrell as Dax forever. Oh, just sensational. Our science-doing, hard-drinking, hard-femme Dax is amazing. So, so good. She's so good. And then for whatever, I still don't know what the ins and outs were of why Terry Farrell didn't stick around for season seven. I know that they had all the contracts were up at the end of season six. And I know they negotiated with everybody. And I know that Colin Meany nearly left the show as well, but then didn't. I don't know what it was that meant that they couldn't keep Terry Farrell on. But yeah, I've heard there's a lot of bad backstage stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you got an amazing few scenes out of Worf from because obviously that's his wife who gets killed. And it's just... Michael Dorn, right? I know that we've been talking about how great Worf is. Can we talk for a minute about how great Michael Dorn is? Because Michael Dorn is an incredible actor. Like, he is just... So good. Just wonderful. And he can do intense stuff. And he can do light stuff. And he can change it up so quickly. Like, he can turn on a dime of... Going from the kind of the glowery wharf of the I will sit here and I listen to my operas and drink prune juice and then he's the wharf of I am not a merry man. And just without any apparent effort on the part of Michael Dorn. It's smooth and it is just incredible. He's such a good actor. Yes. You mentioned the prune juice thing, the idea of Guinan giving him prune juice, which Folks, if you haven't drank brewing juice, it is a drink that fights you on the way down. It's a warrior's drink. And he takes one sip of this astringent, awful concoction that makes you poop. And his <laughs> eyes widen and his he shows his teeth and he says, a warrior's drink. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is, Worf. But speaking of Michael Dorn, I had, I don't even remember where I got it. It was like a videotape that was like behind the scenes stuff of Star Trek The Next Generation. And as a kid who had been watching it in syndication, it was on it at 7 and 8.30. And so it's like I could catch the beginning of the second episode before I was made to go to bed. I was watching this this videotape, and they showed Michael Dorn's whole process for getting the makeup on. When they finished, because it was like a, a time lapse, and then when they finished, he opened the door to the trailer, steps out, and says, Be careful, I take very large steps. <laughs> and made me laugh so hard, not even realizing until potentially 20 years later when... I saw, I think it was Annie Creighton make a comment about that in an I Will Fight You episode and sent her a message and said, oh, is that from the, the Star Trek behind the scenes thing? And she went, no, you idiot. It's from a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And then I went, of course Michael Dorn would be a musical theater nerd. Of course. Of course. Yeah, they always go around each other's houses and do Shakespeare of a weekend. Oh, my God. That crew were, in a way that the others weren't really that group were very very close friends to the extent that now they still all hang out i think it was at 
Brent Spiner's house over New Year's, and they had like mm-hmm. the whole. They were all there, plus partners and children and so on. Which is where I saw because because I, I watch a lot of streaming role playing stuff, and I friends some people in those scenes, and so I'm a, I follow a lot of people who are involved in that kind of thing and involved in sort of cosplay circles and so on as well. <laughs> and, and so I was aware of and knew the work of Mika Burton and did not make the connection that she was LeVar Burton's daughter until I saw this photo from <laughs> Brent Spiner's Brent Spiner's party. And I was like, oh, hey, LeVar Burton's daughter looks a lot like Mika Burton. Oh. Oh, yeah. Like, what a maroon, right? Welcome to the same page as everyone else. I was today years old. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, but like they all used to go around each other's houses on a weekend and you'll pick a Shakespeare play and then just do readings for kicks. Uh, you know, for fun. Because they're all theatre nerds. Yeah, that is also something that Joss Whedon got his casts to do because he'd heard about this as being a thing that the Next Gen cast did and he thought it's a good way of getting cast bond. There you go. So that's why they, they were all going. And that's why that film was made. Uh, yeah. The title I'm blanking on. You know the one I mean. Yeah. <laughs> the one that showed up what amazing physical comedy actors Amy Acker and um, Alexis Denisov were. They're both... I mean, there's a bit in that where Amy Acker falls down a flight of stairs and... It's one of the funniest pratfalls I've ever seen in my life. She's sensational. (laughs) So we're just about out of time. So yes, if we haven't sold you already, you know this Star Trek thing? It's pretty good. And you know there's some new Star Trek that's come out. I've just finished Discovery Season 2 and I'm about to start on Picard and it has reinvigorated my love of Star Trek about just how freaking good Discovery is. So yeah, if we haven't convinced you, go watch some Star Trek. So, Al, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? They should go to Twitter, where I am at House to Astonish. Yes, it's an odd name, but anyway. And you can also go to HouseToAstonish.com, which is where you will find the podcast, uh, House to Astonish. And Mm -hmm. uh, lots of writing by my co-podcaster, Paul O'Brien. If you're into the X-Men, then you will be in hog heaven, because he writes a lot of very good and perspicacious stuff about those comics. And if you would like to hear Desert Island Discworld, then you can go to DesertIslandDiscworld.com, where you'll be able to hear all sorts of very cool and interesting creative folks talking about their life, their work, their careers, and their favourite Pratchett novels. And I presume, considering we're all on lockdown, it's only a matter of time until I'm able to download episodes of Sound of the Underground, your Tremors podcast. It's on the back burner. It's next. My 10-episode Guide to the Tremors canon. Sound of the Underground. It'll happen one day. It's going to be big. Is it going to be today, Al? <laughs> Good reference. Everyone's sitting at Thank home you. going, why did I laugh there? And it's, and then like about six people going, it's a quote from Tremors 2. <sighs> it's a two percenter, man. A two percent will get it. We love you two percenters. All right, Al, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you very much to Al Kennedy for his time. 
For Al's signature cocktail, he didn't really give me much to go on, just that bourbon should feature heavily. As with a lot of people in lockdown, I've been digging into some of the lesser known sections of my liquor cabinet lately, and so I present the Batleth. In a rocks glass with a large piece of ice in the middle, combine one ounce each of botanical gin, Jägermeister, and sweet vermouth. Stir to combine and garnish with a twist of citrus peel. When you enter a bar, do so with your eyes open and scream to let them know a warrior is coming. Enjoy. You can sail to Spain, catch a plane to France, cause I know we'll dance again. Show your hand in Monaco, hear the standards of Montreux, cause I know. The Matthew is recorded in Ride, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes will be released whenever I can get around to recording them, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. This is normally the part where I would tell you that you can pledge as much as you want, but honestly, there are so many better places where you can drop big money. If you want to drop me a dollar, that's fine. In fact, a lot of people have stuck around despite this hiatus during the lockdown, and I appreciate every single one of you. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, even though they've changed it again and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show, and that's really important right now. You can also leave a review, and I might read it out on the show. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one. That's a ridiculous amount of music, including this song. It's Space and Time by Sparkadia. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure to subscribe and get that new music in your ears. This is normally where I would tell you who the next guest is going to be, but since I don't know, I'll just say, be good to one another, and stay safe. It's only time.